Well, hi everyone, uh, my name is James, I'm part of the team here uh, and it's a great joy that we can work through this part of the Bible uh, together. We've been working through Genesis, as you would know, in this series called Full of Promise, learning all about the promise-giving and promise-keeping character of God, uh, how he plans to, to save and bless the sinful world through his promises to Abraham and his family. And uh, tonight we're up to the third generation. We spent a few weeks with Abraham. Uh, Isaac, to be fair, doesn't got a, he hasn't got a lot of attention. He doesn't get a lot of airtime in Genesis. Uh, we'll see a bit tonight. And then we come to the birth of Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. And as we come to these events, maybe they're familiar to you, they teach us an important truth about how God is going to bring about his salvation plans for the world. Namely, uh, that God chooses some and not others. God chooses some and not others. Now, maybe at the thought of me saying that, you think your mind is really thinking, I've heard this before. Uh, We're talking about the dreaded P word, aren't we? Predestination, or some of you might know it as election. The concept that God chooses some people to receive salvation and others he doesn't choose. Maybe the thought of this disturbs you uh, very much. That would not be uncommon. That would be natural. How could God be fair if he chooses some and not others? How could people be to blame uh, if God hasn't chosen them? Of course, this this isn't just a theoretical matter for many of us. There's people in our lives that are dear to us who we would love to see come to trust in Jesus. Maybe you're here tonight and you're, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus and you think, well, what, what, is, has God chosen me or not? Others of us have family members who haven't responded to the offer of salvation in Jesus and what are we to make of that? Is it their fault? Is it God's fault? This is a really tricky topic. Now, whatever your views and feelings are on this matter... The evidence in the Bible that God is ultimately responsible for who is and isn't saved, it's quite compelling. Uh, So here's just a couple of other verses um, to show you that. It's on Jesus' lips in John 6. He says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. A bit later in Acts, when Paul shares the Christian message with a group of people In the town of Antioch, we read this, the Gentiles heard this, then they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. They didn't believe and then became appointed, they believed in Jesus because they were appointed. And then one of Paul's letters, Ephesians 1, he chose us in him, that is God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Um, The challenge for us, I think, is to come to terms, perhaps even embrace this truth in the Bible. And can I say, I myself have found that very hard over the years. Uh, It's a tricky topic. Uh, At one point, many years ago, I expressed my concerns to an older Christian friend. And what they said to me, what their reply has struck me, um, and, and it's, it's stuck with me. It, it's uh, been my position ever since, or around that time. Uh, I said, how could God ever blame someone and punish them in hell if he hasn't chosen them? 
That doesn't seem like a good and fair God. And my friend said this. They said, oh, it's strange that you say that because I experience exactly the opposite quandary. I can well understand how God would send someone like me and, and uh, an awful sinner. I mistreat God every day. Uh, I'm guilty of offending him uh, all the time. I can understand how he would judge me and, uh, and punish me. Uh, what strikes me as unusual is that this holy and perfect God could ever accept someone like me into his eternal heaven. I understand that it's because of Jesus and uh, what he's done on the cross, but the wonder of God accepting sinful people like me never ceases to overwhelm me. Uh, that's what they said. And my hope is that in 20 minutes' time or thereabouts, you might feel something similar to that. Um, it's a difficult topic. Uh, you might not change your mind tonight. You might not um, be fully grasp uh, this big doctrine. But uh, my prayer and hope is that you'll feel something similar to that friend of mine uh, at the end of this talk. Now, the good news for us is in Genesis, in the passages, passages that were read for us, we get this idea of election, of God choosing people, brought to life... And, and played out in the lives of individuals, in, in real people, real decisions, real behaviour. Um, and hopefully as we examine the lives of Jacob and Esau uh, and the events, we'll have some of our questions answered. We'll, we'll see this doctrine uh, come, come to play out in the lives of people. Is, is God fair? Are these people just robots destined to do what God has already predetermined? Now, that's the beauty of this part of Genesis. Um, so these are the headings we're going to follow. Uh, firstly, God chose Jacob, not Esau. Uh, secondly, uh, we'll focus on Esau, and we're going to learn that Esau got what he deserved. Thirdly, we'll see that Jacob got better than he deserved. So that's the plan. So point one... Uh, the Bible does teach us that God chose Jacob to receive his blessings, not Esau. So we enter the story in chapter 25. Isaac and Rebekah are now married. That was what we did last week. They've had many childless years, but eventually they pray and God gives them children. Rebekah conceives twins. It's not a smooth pregnancy, we're told, so she asks the Lord what's going on. And the Lord's response to Rebekah in verse 23 is very crucial for understanding all that follows. What happens in the life of Jacob and of Esau? Verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, in those days, the cultural norm was that the older child would have the position of privilege. Uh, they'd inherit more of the family property. They'd take up leadership of the family. Um, but here, God says, it's, gonna be, it's not going to work that way. The older will serve the younger. Um, now, these words here, I don't think are um, mere words of foresight, uh, as if God can see the future and just telling Rebecca in advance what's going to happen. No, often... More often than not in the Bible, uh, perhaps all the time in, indeed, God's words, his prophetic words to people are words 
not merely of perception, but of creation. Uh, God doesn't just see what's going to happen in the future. He creates the future. And that's the case here. Before Jacob and Esau were even born, God had determined that Jacob would be his man. Now, how do we know this? How do we know this? Well, on the one hand, we see this play out in the chapters that follow. But another helpful uh, tool in interpreting the Bible well is to look for other parts of the Bible that comment on the passage in front of us. Um, The Bible interprets the Bible. This is exactly what happens uh, in this case. In Romans chapter 9, Romans, one of the New Testament letters, Paul, the author, takes up the example of Jacob and Esau and says this is a classic case of God's uh, choosing to save one and not the other. So Romans chapter 9, let's have a read of it. Now, Rebecca received a promise when she became pregnant by one man, our ancestor Isaac. For though her sons had not been, uh, been born yet, or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. That's what we've read here. The, the last quote comes from the prophet Malachi, later in the, New, in the Old Testament, reflecting back on Jacob and Esau. And prophets, maybe you've learned prophets, a bit emotive in their language. Uh, they want to fire people up. I don't think it's the case uh, that God actually hated Esau. Um, God, Esau was still one of God's creatures. Uh, he loved him. But the sense of that sentence in Malachi, and as Paul says it, is what, we've, what I've been putting to you, that God chose Jacob and he didn't choose Esau. Uh, so God is a God who chooses people. And Jacob and Esau illustrate that truth. In, in our household this week, we've been learning a bit about people choosing. Uh, we've been discussing, pl- discussing playground politics. I've learned this week that whoever brings the soccer ball to school, they have the right to choose who's on which team. I didn't know that before. I see some knowing nods, maybe school teachers. Um, even, and if more than one person brings a soccer ball, the group decide what is, which is the better ball. And that person gets to choose uh, the teams. And there's cries of unfairness and uh, the people, they choose their friends, they're fickle, they, they choose based on who's the better soccer player or not. Uh, it gets messy, uh, there's tears. Uh, God's not like that. So God is not fickle and um, wishy-washy in his choices. He's, he doesn't choose people based on merit. Uh, not like the, the good soccer player. He doesn't choose people who are going to be the, the better Christians. Uh, he doesn't play favourites. Now, this is Paul's point in that quote. Uh, the sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad. Neither Jacob or Esau had been born when this choice was made. They didn't have the opportunity to please God or to offend him. Um, It's not based on works. It's not based on what we do or what we're like. It's God's free and gracious choice. Now, of course, this concept uh, offends and challenges our notion of fairness. 
How could God choose some and not others? How could he blame people and punish them uh, if they weren't chosen? And that's why it's so important for us to look closely at the examples of Esau first and then Jacob and see what we learn. So we're on to the second heading now. We learn the harsh but important truth that Esau got what he deserved. I'm just going to move this slightly to the centre. Those of you, uh, some of you, I'm sure someone here would have noticed that. Um, the, The harsh but important truth that Esau got what he deserved. This is the lesson we get from the scene in chapter 25. So just... Continuing the story, after Rebecca's born, excuse me, after Rebecca gives birth to the twins, um, Jacob and Esau, we learn that Esau is red and hairy. Someone during the week said they think he looks like that Scottish guy out of Braveheart. Um, some of you will remember that movie. Jacob, uh, more of a mummy's boy, uh, quite likes cooking, we're going to learn. Um, and so there's two different twins. And then Verse 29, we get this scene. Um, I don't know how old they are here, but um, they've grown up a bit. Um, Jacob's cooking lentil stew. Uh, Esau comes in hungry and he wants some of the stew. And Jacob, ever the scheming, deceiving um, scumbag that he is, uh, he trades the stew for Esau's birthright. And the birthright, as I alluded to a moment ago, is the privilege of the older son uh, to receive property and headship of the family. Um, in the context of what we've been reading in Genesis, I think we can also infer that Esau's birthright would have had some connection to these grand promises that God had made Abraham, his grandfather, and Isaac, his father. Uh, So Esau's birthright was a significant thing. But here, he trades it away for some lentil stew. Now, I imagine in some instances, lentils can be quite tasty, uh, but it's no comparison, is it? He trades away his birthright for some lentil stew. Now, I'd love for you to notice with me how this activity, this decision on Esau's part, was a conscious and considered decision. So first he asks for the stew. Then in verse 32, he weighs it up. Have a look at verse 32. He weighs up the decision. I'm about to die. Um, So what good is a birthright to me? I'm not sure he's about... I think he's exaggerating a bit uh, because after he eats, he can get up and walk away. But he weighs up the value of his birthright and the value of the lentil stew. And then, after that, he swears to Jacob. He swears uh, to abide by the transaction and deal that they've arrived at. Folks, this picture we get of Esau, this, this isn't a picture of a mindless robot who is bound to think and act uh, in the way that God has already predetermined. This isn't a picture of an innocent Man watching along on the sidelines as God's plan to transfer the blessing to Jacob unfolds. No, Esau, this is Esau's genuine, uh, conscious, responsible decision. Uh, 
Uh, now, we'll, it's not to say Jacob's innocent. We'll come to Jacob. But Esau is guilty of a terrible judgment. A terrible judgment. Uh, and the author wants us to take that away from this episode. Sometimes when the, the biblical authors present events to us, they just give us the facts, they describe what's going on. But when they add to the facts by uh, offering their own interpretation, their own judgment, that's often a really important part to consider. And that's what happens in verse 34, just the last sentence. So Esau despised his birthright. He thought little of it. He didn't value it any more than a bowl of lentil stew. So when Esau comes to be rejected by God, when his deal with uh, Jacob gets acted upon and and brought to completion in chapter 27, when the blessing is given to Isaac, albeit in uh, in an awful way, uh, we have to remember this scene and and recognize that Esau got what he wanted. He had decided to trade away his birthright. He got what he wanted. Now, there's two lessons uh, in the example of Esau that I think we can draw from this. Number one, and this is especially for Christian believers, uh, don't be stupid like Esau and trade away eternal spiritual riches for earthly comforts. We're not going to look it up now, but I do recommend you read Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, this scene, Esau is held up as an example by the author of Hebrews, an example of someone who is stupid, who trades away their eternal and spiritual blessings for a temporary earthly advantage. The Hebrews uh, were Christian people in the first century that were being persecuted for following Jesus and the temptation for them would have been to give up on following Jesus and, and so that they would fit in with the people around them. Avoid the trouble, avoid the persecution um, and uh, make life easier. Uh, all they had to do was deny Jesus. Um, and it's easy to imagine how we might face similar temptations. We might not give up on Jesus in obvious intentional ways Uh, but one of the warning signs, I think, is when we come to value the things of the world, success and comfort uh, according to worldly values, when we come to treasure that and and have our hearts long for that uh, more than treasuring and longing for our eternal spiritual riches, um, if, if if the, when you weigh those things up, there's not a big difference. That's a cause for concern, I think, because uh, we're vulnerable to sort of giving up on our spiritual riches so that we can have a worldly gain, comfort, uh, pleasure, all manner of things, ease. Now, I understand why we might do that. The things of the world are tangible. Everyone else is living that way. Why not us? But friends, hear this warning. Don't be like Esau. Don't be like Esau, who gave up his eternal and spiritual riches for earthly comforts. Now the second lesson, and coming back to our our bigger question about God choosing people, I think 
we can say from this incident that when someone rejects God, uh, we don't blame God, we blame the people that reject him. In other words, Esau's decision was conscious. He's responsible uh, for what he did. Um, The Bible never sort of drives a wedge between God's plans and human decision-making. Somehow, the two work together. What that means is people that reject God are responsible for their decisions. And that's, that's the case with all people, not just Esau, uh, all people that reject God's offer of salvation. Um, I, in the past few years, I've had some very direct conversations with people that are close to me about the offer of salvation in Jesus. One being a very good friend, another a member of my immediate family. And uh, I think, I mean, without blowing my own trumpet, I think I conveyed fairly clearly what God offers us in Jesus. Sins forgiven, death overcome, the hope of eternal life. I, I explained to them what's on the line. And in each case, they very clearly and consciously indicated to me that it just wasn't for them. They had determined, uh, they, they didn't fail to understand, but they had determined that they wouldn't take Jesus' offer seriously. They didn't consider it necessary to respond and, and, and trust Jesus the way I was suggesting they might. Now, as I come, came away from those conversations, uh, I never found myself blaming God. Um, now, don't mishear me. I, I still pray for these people. I believe that God can change their hearts. I don't consider myself better than them. But when someone, when you put the offer of salvation to someone clearly uh, and they reject it clearly, um, I find it hard to blame God for that. I, it's very e- obvious to me in those circumstances uh, that those people were rejecting God, making a baffling uh, and terrible decision. Uh, so I do hear this, friends. Uh, people that reject God, they get what they deserve. They're not condemned on account of the fact that God hasn't chosen them. They're condemned because they reject Him. They're, they're sinful people who have rebelled against God and they're condemned because they reject the offer of mercy which he freely extends through Jesus. It's a very important lesson. Let's move on to Jacob. Uh, So remember, God chose Jacob, not Esau. Esau. Esau got what he deserved. Jacob, Jacob got better than he deserved. Now, let's make no bones about it. Jacob, he's a grub. Uh, he was worse than Esau. When we go to chapter, well, we've already seen chapter 25, but chapter 27 uh, is just outrageous. Um, he lies to his father uh, in four or five different ways. He puts goatskin uh, on his arms and puts on his brother's clothes to impersonate his brother, Esau. Uh, when his father Isaac asks Jacob who he is, he says, I am Esau. Uh, when Isaac is suspicious about how the meal was prepared so quickly. 
He lies again, even bringing in the Lord to his deceit. Oh, the Lord, he, uh, he helped me. Your Lord helped me get the meal ready so early. And then verse 24, Isaac's still suspicious. Um, he says, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob replies, I am. This isn't a, um, a moment of weakness, a white lie. This is a calculated, uh, heartless, exploitative scoundrel at work. Um, along with his mother, uh, we know, I mean, this is just a messed up family. God's chosen family. Ladies, this is it. God's chosen family. Uh, look at what they're like. And Jacob is probably the worst. Now, what does this teach us? If God chose Jacob, well, it teaches us that God's choice is not based on merit, on, on moral performance. Um, Jacob does nothing to earn God's favor. In fact, on the contrary, uh, Jacob deserves God's punishment. Um, and that's the case for all of us. Now, we might not exhibit the same deceitful behavior as Jacob, but we've all got flaws. Every single human that's ever lived. Remember where this story is situated in the, the big picture of the Bible. God created the world good, but all humanity have rejected him. No one is righteous. All have fallen short of God. And this whole notion of God choosing people and choosing some and not others, can I say, it will, be very, it will always be very hard to stomach if our starting point is a sense of entitlement, that God owes us mercy. I mean, that's just a... That sentence doesn't make logical sense, that God owes us mercy. In, our, in modern society, particularly in Australia, uh, we, we're privileged to have control over many areas of life. So we actually have the ability to go out and, and get what we want, uh, to do what we want. Uh, we have the world at our fingertips. Uh, and therefore, it's very easy to feel entitled uh, to blessing. Uh, but that's not the reality of the Bible. And if, if we start with this sense, this, this is a crucial link in the chain. If we start with the sense that all people are innocent and deserving entry into heaven, we will, we will never come to accept this doctrine of election. But if you remember that all people are guilty and God chooses some and not others, uh, well, uh, the doctrine of election becomes uh, an incredible testimony to God's grace. Um, and Jacob is a classic example. He is a scoundrel who God chooses to save. Now, how, how does this all work? God, he doesn't fudge the scales of justice. Some people get better than they deserve because there was one man who got worse than he deserved. We know that, don't we? The only way that some people get better than they deserve is because one got worse than he deserved. Here's just one sentence from Isaiah. I could have chosen many. We read that, this, this man, Jesus, was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, for Jacob's lies. Um, punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed 
by his wounds. Uh, Some people get better than they deserve because our Saviour got worse than he deserved. Now, let me just offer two uh, take-home points uh, as we think about Jacob and people getting better than they deserved. Uh, Number one, if if you're someone that follows Jesus uh, and, and trusts him, well, you can be confident that you're, you're chosen. That's the, that's, the Bible never calls us to try and work out who is and isn't chosen. Our faith is not in our election, it's in Jesus. So if you follow Jesus, that is the mark that you're chosen. But, and if you're in that category, the doctrine of election must humble you. It must. Because we're not worthy of God's kindness... Uh, And he chooses us despite our sin. We've done nothing to earn his favour. Look at Jacob. We're not better uh, than the people that aren't chosen. Um, In some cases, we might be worse. Um, Now, the flip side of that is that uh, not only are we humbled, but we're assured. Uh, We're saved because of God. Uh, not because of us. That's a great assurance when we continue to struggle with sin and do things which offend God. It's not, we're not saved because of us. We're saved because of God. Uh, let me finish with this quote uh, that sums up these two points really well. This is by a fellow called Charles Spurgeon, who was an English minister in the 19th century, and he, he wrestled with this doctrine of election And he says this, he says, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. There's someone who has wrestled with this truth uh, but has been humbled and assured. And this is what we've learnt tonight through the examples of Esau and Jacob. Some people get what they deserve. Uh, Esau. Some people get better than they deserve. No one who who finds themselves in, in hell under God's judgment can say, I don't deserve this. But by the same token, no one who ends up in heaven, uh, the recipient of God's mercy, can say, I deserve this. No, no. Some people get what they deserve. Some people get better than they deserve. From Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. How untraceable his ways. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we, there's so much of your word that is difficult to, to follow and hard to swallow. Um, help us, we ask, to grasp and um, embrace the grace uh, that you show people even as you choose them and not others. Help those amongst us that find it really difficult to accept this, um, give us all um, your help. Give us uh, 
gentle uh, and edifying conversation with brothers and sisters as we wrestle with this truth. And Father, would, we, would you purify our thoughts uh, that we might um, align our minds and our hearts with what you've revealed in your word. We thank you especially that you're gracious to sinful people uh, like Jacob and like us. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.